0: Greetings, welcome to Whites Run Baptist Church, Witnesses of the King. We have another installment here in the book of Acts. As We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 today, and we're going to be learning about uh, Paul's uh, trip to Jerusalem as he is turning toward Jerusalem. Uh, we got to the end of his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, and he returned to Antioch to report into the church that had originally sent him on all his missionary journeys. And then he departed from there on a third missionary journey to return primarily to the churches in which he had ministered before to strengthen them and encourage them. And now we're at a turning point in that third missionary journey in which Paul is has set his face toward Jerusalem as it word was said of Jesus. It's very interesting because what we're seeing is Paul resolved in the spirit to go. And let's take a look at that. Uh, He resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And so he is being led of the spirit to go to Jerusalem. However, we see great foreshadowing that difficulties await him there. and We're going to see even more of that as we get closer to that time that he arrives there. And you could see it again here in Acts chapter 20 after the passage we'll be looking at today. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, he knows peril awaits him in Jerusalem. He doesn't know the exact nature of it. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but yet the Holy Spirit's been kind enough to prepare him for it. And as he goes there, he is resolved to go there. Much as Jesus was in Luke 9.51. And it's not a surprise that we see this theme in the book of Acts because the book of Acts was also written by Luke. And here's what it says there: When the days drew near for him to be taken up—that is, for for Jesus to be crucified—he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, this was a a determined march toward the cross for Jesus. Much as it's a determined march toward Jerusalem. For Paul, where indeed he will be arrested, uh, don't want to give spoilers here, but I assume you're reading ahead in the book of Acts, he's going to be arrested and eventually be taken to Rome. So isn't it interesting that he knows that he must go and see Rome? He says that in Acts 19.21. He says, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's aware he's going to Rome somehow. He just probably doesn't imagine that it's as a prisoner. So I've named this series, or this uh, two or three sermon series that I have in the middle here, Passion of the Preacher. I've named it Passion for two reasons, because that's what we called it when Jesus went uh, to the cross and was resurrected. We call, call that the Passion of the Christ. And uh, I see a parallel here in what Paul is doing and going toward Jerusalem. But also the Passion, because what we're going to see in these last days of his last missionary journey before being arrested, is we're going to see Paul act in a way that really reveals what he is passionate about. And I hope that you'll see these things with me. and We're going to find great encouragement from what we learn here today. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 20. We will look at the first 12 verses here, and this will give us some idea of what's happening here. After the uproar ceased, this is the uproar in Ephesus, Uh, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said do not be alarmed for his life is in him and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your servants. We thank you for Luke's careful account of all that they did. And Lord, I pray that these things, as you have preserved them by the power of your Spirit, will be an encouragement to us this day. We believe that your word is God-breathed. We believe that it is inspired and that it is useful. And so, Lord, make it useful to us this day that we may be indeed uh, glorified with your Son, Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's uh, an interesting thing, uh, this young man falling asleep during the preaching, uh, probably something that many of us are accustomed to seeing, you know, on occasion at least, Uh, R.C. Sproul, when he preached through this passage of the book of Acts, uh, he subtitled this particular section, The Perils of Falling Asleep in Church. And I'm sure you could use this as an instructive to your children. Be careful not to fall asleep in church. You never know what might happen. But what we see here is with Paul, we see that he has his passions revealed here. And we see two of them that we're going to talk about this week, and then we'll do the rest of chapter 20 next week, talk about more of his passions. But two of them we see here are to support and to encourage. So first of all, support. This is only indirectly mentioned here. And it's mentioned by way of mentioning these traveling companions that he has. He has more than the usual number of people with him, you might have noticed. Paul was gathering financial support, for Jerusalem. And in order to be accountable, but also to be diplomatic and, and present the the financial support for the people in Jerusalem, representatives of some of the various churches were traveling with Paul to Jerusalem to present this offering to them. And so Paul was gathering the support and it was uh, it's, it's mentioned more in the letters than it is here in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it will be mentioned in Acts chapter 24, verse 17, uh, where Paul is accounting why he was in Jerusalem. He says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And so Paul mentions this then, and this is what he was in the act of doing now. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, he was ministering in Greece for about three months. This is probably primarily Corinth that he is ministering in. That was the largest church there and maybe ministering and expanding out into the area around it. But this is likely Corinth and this is the time and the place from which Paul wrote the book of Romans. Now what does that have to do with what we're talking about, his support? Look what he says in the book of Romans about this. As he writes to Rome, to the church in Rome, from Corinth, this is what he writes. He says, at present, and this as he's coming to a close in the letter. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also, uh, they ought to also to be of service to them in material blessings, and so Paul was passionate about support. He was passionate about bringing to these people what it was that they needed in their time of support. The reason why there was so much need in Jerusalem, it accounts earlier in the book of Acts that indeed there was a famine in that area. And we know from reading the Bible that famines around Jerusalem are common, especially when God is displeased with the nation of Israel. And so this is uh, likely that kind of a judgment that he's brought upon them. And also for the believers in the area of Jerusalem, it was particularly difficult because there was much discrimination against the people of what they were calling the way and now were just coming to be called Christians. The Jews would discriminate against them. That was a primarily Jewish area, and the Christians there were primarily Jewish, and they would be discriminated against by not being able to find gainful employment, or if they were independent business owners, that the Jews wouldn't go to their stores because they were rejecting them and the gospel and everything else, and so they would discriminate against the believers in that way. So it was very difficult for the believers there to make a living, which frankly is why so many left many, many people left Jerusalem to find uh, uh, places that were more comfortable were more accepting of their faith. But Paul was also a tremendous believer in the unity of the church. If you read the letter to the Ephesians, indeed it's mentioned in every one of his letters, the idea of unity. The letter to the Ephesians mentions it particularly and with particular emphasis on the fact that the Jew, that, that the church is made up of both jew and gentile they've been taken from two separate peoples and made into a single people in jesus christ and paul was very passionate about that and notice what he says there in verse 27 in romans 15 he says they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them for if gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings in other words the Gentiles ought to have the attitude that we are sharing in the blessings of the Jews. And this is very much the case. Paul continues to make the case well into his ministry. Now, mind you, he was primarily a minister to the Gentiles. But he describes the gospel as coming first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so as Gentiles, we are described by Paul as being grafted in. We were the ones that were aliens and strangers and now have been brought near. So how much more should we respect those who have always been near and have remained so by putting their trust in Jesus Christ? And indeed, then we ought to be, if we are grateful for the blessings that we've received through that nation, then we ought to be willing then to share in material things, because of the spiritual blessings we have received. And this is what Paul is saying. He is passionate about this this support for the church in Jerusalem. He's also very passionate because things have been said about him in Jerusalem that he's telling Gentiles to disregard the law and things like this, and many people didn't have a full understanding of what life in Christ would be like, and they thought that Paul was working against them. And so Paul is is trying to keep that bridge keep that bridge stable keep that bridge open and and keep ties between the Jews and Gentiles between Jerusalem and the rest of the known world at the time very strong so he's passionate about unity he's passionate about support for the church he's also very passionate about encouragement encouragement let's take a look in acts chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 here uh we see here that uh That the word encouragement appears two times. In verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And so this is about encouragement. He likes to uh, have encouragement. We're going to see this word again in verse 12 at the other end of the passage that we are examining today. And this is an interesting word. It's parakaleo in the Greek, and it's uh, two words stuck together, a prefix that means of or with, and a suffix that means to call or name. And kind of the basic idea of it is to call alongside. It also gives the idea of begging or pleading. Now, it's most often for us in, uh, translated as encourage or exhort or to comfort, and we find it in all those kinds of ways. It's the idea that um, we give support or confidence or hope to somebody with the intent to stimulate appropriate behavior. In other words, it's to, to make someone's heart strong, someone's innards have the right attitude and have the right encouragement. And we see this word interestingly used, in Acts chapter 14, verse 16, as Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure, he says, uh, uh, <laughs> I've gone to the wrong place. I'm supposed to go to John. Let me fix this. Okay. John 14, 16. Right in the midst of this discourse he has with his disciples on the last night when he's arrested, he says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another Helper, and if you've memorized that in other translations, he says another comforter to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So he speaks of the Holy Spirit as this helper or comforter, which was a paraclete, in other words, it's this same word used for encouragement here. And so, for him to bring this encouragement into uh, what we see here, uh, this encouragement is powerfully helpful to understand as simply this. The primary driver of the Christian life is faith. It is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. It is by faith that we do all that we do. It is by faith that all the people of old, as the book of Hebrews accounts it, accomplished what they accomplished. It was by their faith. And so with our primary driver being to faith, It's safe to say that encouragement is the increasing of our faith. And you might ask, well, how is that done exactly? How is it that encouragement increases our faith? How is Paul doing that here, or how does he do it elsewhere? Well, it's very simply this. He draws our focus to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We increase in our faith... When the object of our faith is enlarged in our sight. When the object of our faith becomes bigger to us, more important to us, more significant to us, then our faith grows. This is why our faith is in Jesus Christ. Our faith is not in the faith, our faith is not in the church, our faith is not in other human beings who've prayed a prayer over us, our faith is not even in our own confession. Although our own confession can be encouraging, we don't put our faith in our confession, we don't put our faith in our repentance, our faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we increase our faith by reminding one another in the context of the church, by the word of God, look, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is what b- has been promised to you, and this is what Jesus has done that we may know he will fulfill all of his promises. The Holy Spirit, by the word of God from the Bible and, by, and coming from the mouth of our brothers in Jesus Christ, is the greatest encourager, That the Holy Spirit is sparked by the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God in the context of the people of God. We are inseparably designed to function as a body. That's critically important to understand. The church is designed to function as a body. If God wants to encourage the believers at Corinth, he sends them someone to encourage them. If God wants to encourage you, he's going to send you believers to encourage you. If someone near you needs encouragement, he may send you to be an encouragement to them. And the primary raw material of our encouragement is going to be the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that points us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now there are many things to be known about the Gospel. There are an infinite number of things to be known about Jesus. John alluded to that when he wrote his gospel, and he said, look, if if we wrote down everything Jesus did, that the books would fill the whole earth. But Paul focused, and he told us a great many things. He taught broadly about who Jesus was and, and understanding all the works that he has done. But Paul made much of Christ crucified. He camped there, as it were, and took expeditions to the other aspects of faith in Christ, but he camped where Jesus was crucified. Look how he puts it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, He doesn't mean that's all he ever preached all day. What it means is that that was central. That that was the most important thing. That he didn't try to bring in other philosophies or other ideas or or even apply other religions or other works. No, he, he kept that at the center because that is the ultimate work that Jesus performed for us that we may be saved. And so that is always, of course, paired with the resurrection. And you'll find Paul does that too. If he mentions crucifixion, he's about to mention the resurrection. And so we look at his letters. This is how we determine how he was encouraging. Because, honestly, if you just try to build this idea on these two verses here, the idea that he encouraged the people before he left and that he went to other churches encouraging them, you wouldn't know exactly what that meant. You wouldn't understand the context or the content of what he was saying. But because we have so many of his letters, we know precisely what he was saying. He was saying these things about Christ with the crucifixion, resurrection at the center of it all. Now, the way he encouraged was lifting up Jesus, who he is and what he has done. The author John Snyder, who wrote uh, a Bible study called Behold Your God, he said this way, he said, the gospel is the good news that God has done everything necessary to save us ultimately from sin and its consequences, and to bring us to himself. Now that's an important definition, I think is a good definition of the gospel. The good news that God has done everything necessary to save us ultimately from sin and its consequences and to bring us to himself. This is the encouragement. If it were simply up to us, if our salvation was a matter of the works that we do, then the only encouragement we would have is that we've done well enough. And if we read the Bible, particularly things like the Sermon on the Mount, we will very quickly discover that none of us have done well enough and that we will then be discouraged in our endeavors. Jesus offered himself in our place, to take the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins. He's taken our punishment. And he, then, is the one who is worthy and of all praise and honor and glory and power and dominion. He's worthy of it all. He is the one that's worthy to open a scroll in the book of Revelation. He is the one that's worthy to have our allegiance and to have our obedience because he has done this for us. And he's the only one that was worthy to do that act for us, because he's the only one that has never sinned. In exchange uh, for taking our sins upon himself, then, he gives us his perfect righteousness. Look at it this way, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, that his righteousness becomes made available to us. That means all the credit that he gets for all the good and positive things that he did in his life here, that gets credited to our account. And so our debt is taken away and we're given a credit to our account. And the father then views the people of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ himself, as his body. That's why it's careful to call us his body. And let me ask you this, who's going to argue with the author of life itself, the sinless God-man who laid down his life for us, who's going to bring accusation against anyone that God says belongs to him? See, Paul was not merely telling people how to live. Paul wasn't just laying out the rules for Christian living. Paul wasn't even telling us how to get the best out of God, how to how to work things so that we get what we want from God. What Paul was teaching was who Jesus Christ was and what it is he did for us. Now along the way, he would preach and teach much practical wisdom for living because that needs to be done. We're still in the here and now. We still minister here in the present. And so it's not just about going to heaven one day and being with the Lord. It is about eternal life beginning now and so there would be much practical encouragement but the 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 weight of it comes from the identity of Jesus Christ and the work that he performed so christian encouragement is not a pep talk it's not encouraging someone to try harder it's not encouraging someone that they can find it within themselves to achieve christian encouragement is to draw our focus to the Lord Jesus Christ, a constant reminder of his identity and his work. And that motivates us then to perform and to work and to strive in the ministry of the gospel from an attitude of devotion, an attitude of confidence, because our trust is in the one who does not. Well, you see, Paul loved to encourage, and he spoke as long as someone would listen. In the last night in Troas, you'll notice uh, the first day of the week, that would be a Sunday when we were gathered together to break bread. There's several things we have to understand here as far as background before we fully understand the weight of what happens here. They uh, were already in the habit of worshiping on the first day of the week. Many people argue that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath, Look, you can keep the Sabbath if you want to, but it's not binding upon Christians. Jesus has fulfilled the law, and according to the book of Hebrews, he is our ultimate Sabbath rest. I think you could find great encouragement from observing a Saturday Sabbath, and and it would certainly be good for your family if you do it properly, focusing on God all that day. But nevertheless, we see the early church was beginning to worship on the first day of the week. Now, much of the early church were Jews, so they would also still celebrate the Sabbath, but then the next day they would also celebrate. The problem that they had was simply this, that the first day of the week wasn't a weekend. They didn't have a two-day weekend like we do now in our world. And they would have the Sabbath off because of religious convictions. They would not be required by people to work on their Sabbath on the Saturday. But they would work the other six days of the week. So when they gather together to worship, this is on a work day. And it is probably in the evening after their work is done for the day that they would gather together, they would break bread. In other words, they would have communion, but they would also have fellowship meal. And then they would also hear the word of God expounded. They would read from the scriptures, or they would read from the letters that they had received from apostles, and they would read those things, and they would discuss those things, and they would be encouraged. And so this is what we come into in verse 7 here. The first day of the week, they're gathered together to break bread. Luke's with them because he says we. Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. So they're, they're up till midnight on a weekday. Okay, so everyone there has already worked. This young man's probably already worked hard that day. And they're up until midnight. And to get the real context of what happens here, um, you've worked a full day. You've listened to Paul now preach or teach until midnight. You're in an area of the world that is a basically warm climate. You're in a room full of people taking up oxygen and generating heat, and a bunch of lamps are there, taking up oxygen, giving off heat, and poor Eutychus here becomes drowsy, becomes, as it says, overcome with sleep. Well, he's sitting in the window, and their windows then were different than our windows now. Their windows were larger their windows did not have glass. They came closer to the floor because they were used primarily for the ventilation. They were meeting in an upper room. The upper rooms would be the best ones for ventilation. And so he is he is positioned himself by the window, which indicates that he's trying to stay with it. He's trying to stay awake because he's gone where the very freshest air is. And he's gotten as much fresh air as he can but it's not even enough. Ultimately, he over, he's overcome. He topples to the ground out of this third floor and is killed. Now, I've got to say, if you come to, to White's Run and you listen to one of my sermons and you, you fall off your pew and, and you die, honestly, you're probably out of luck. I mean, I'll, I'll certainly pray and, and I'll do what I can, but I am not an apostle. These signs were for the apostles. These things were done by the apostles to affirm their message. We are now in a time when many lying signs and wonders are being done by the evil one, as Jesus warned us. And so he's not throwing around a whole lot of signs and resurrections and things like that uh, because, so that there's not confusion. But there is an interesting illustration here, even though we can't take from this and say, oh, if something happens to me while I'm listening to the word of God, God will save my life. Well, he will save your life, but he'll save it ultimately. You may go to be with heaven that day. If poor Eutychus lived now, fell asleep in my sermon, fell to the ground off the pew, then he would be with the Lord, which is just as good and maybe even a better salvation than being resurrected but nevertheless this sign was needed for the people as a great encouragement because how does it sum it up at the end in verse 12 here it says this they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted that's Luke's way of saying they were very very comforted because he tends to understate things but those who fear who hear the word of God who heed the word of God who seek it out They need not fear death. Death has nothing over them. Not that you'll be revived if you happen to get in a car accident on the way to church or whatever, but that you will have life eternal. That you will have ultimate life. This is a sign of life is that they would seek the words of truth. In fact, they're called the words of life in a couple places. In John chapter 6, Jesus began to teach very difficult things. And many of the people that were following him as disciples then turned away at that time. But he turns to the others and and he asks, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers for all of them. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And even Paul uses this in the book of Philippians. He says, holding fast to the word of life. He's telling them how to persevere, how to continue in the faith. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so it's the word of life. And the ones who come uh, for, who, who only come to church once a week for an hour and then that's it, I, I'm very concerned about those people because who knows? Are they really partaking of the word of God? See, I, I've been on the side of the preacher. I know the preacher's passion, and I know the sign of the people of God—that when they gather together, and when they hunger and thirst for the word of God, and they—they're willing to stay up all night, and they're going to risk being tired at work the next day. They're going to—they're going to fight being on a night shift or the swing shift or whatever kind of nonsense they are—to get with the people of God and get the word of God in them. Those are the ones I have hope for. Those are the ones that, that preachers recognize, and yet yeah, preachers talk about uh, these things, that the preachers recognize, those are my real people. Those are the ones who, who are showing up for the extra services. They happen to be the ones who are doing the work about the church. They happen to be the ones who are also testifying to neighbor and friend about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're seeking the word of life. They can bring life to others. Paul was passionate about both support and encouragement. And we see all through his letters, we see through his work in Acts, that this is his passion to encourage people, to lift them up, to make them strong of heart, to go and live the great Christian life. And to this day, the faithful in Christ are passionate about the same things. Let's take a look at a few applications here today. First of all, I would encourage you, support the people of God however you can. Uh, Support first the people of God. There should not be poor among us. There should not be poor among us. Now, yes, they may be poor, but they shouldn't be in want of things. In other words, the church first ought to see to it that the necessities of its people are met. This is powerfully important for us to do. And this is a testimony to those who are not in the church, who do not have faith in Christ. It's a testimony to say, oh, our people don't worry about that. You know, we take care of one another. If if I have a house and someone needs a place to stay tonight, that's where they're staying. If I have an automobile that I'm not using and someone needs an automobile, we give them the automobile. It's not difficult. It doesn't require a lot of careful prayer and planning and thought. It's simply We share as we have. This is the model in the book of Acts. This is encouragement to Paul through his letters that we would give to those who are in need among us first and then secondarily into our surrounding areas and communities. So support the people of God however you can and be willing to take support. There's an awful thing rampant among the people of God which has always been so. And that is pride. We want the other people of God to think that we're doing well, to think that we're okay. And so we will first go elsewhere when we need food, when we need clothing, when we need to make the the payment on the house and things like that. Go to the people of God to meet your needs. Because if you do not, you are actually robbing them of the opportunity to serve you in that way. And you are actually robbing Jesus Christ of the glory that he would receive for that need being met among the people of God. Go to the people of God first for your help. And then secondly, uh, give encouragement. Regardless of your position among God's people, you do not have to be a an apostle, which they're all gone now anyway, or a preacher or pastor or anything like that in order to give encouragement. We are called to love one another, and the greatest love that we can give is to encourage one another, to lift up the person of Jesus Christ, his character and his works in the sight of one another. This is a very basic expression of love and the most help that we can be to one another is to turn them toward Christ in whatever their need is. And secondarily, receive encouragement, get encouragement from people of God. And that's going to require you to gather with the people of God and perhaps even learn his word late into the night. Just don't sit by the window. So these are some encouragements that we have and we are in need of encouragement in this world. This is why we must give encouragement. This is why we must receive encouragement, because there is chaos, and there's chaos outside us, all around us, turmoil, political and and uh, and cultural turmoil all throughout our world, but there's also turmoil within us, within each one of us, and difficulties and struggles that we have, and we are meant as God's people to share those burdens together. And to ultimately give them over to Christ. But he's going to do it through his people. So our only comfort is in the word of God. And the best place to receive that comfort is among the people of God. What Paul wanted for his people was that they would be able to get together and feast on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. That they would be able to get together and drink the living water. That Jesus provides, that they would want to know Christ above all other things. Now, Paul would deny, uh, would not deny anyone willing to stay and take in more. I have a feeling that as long as Paul had an audience, he would proclaim Jesus Christ. And he would proclaim him as long as that audience was there. And indeed, I know something of what he means. I know something of what he means. It's a pure, high, beautiful, and encouraging motivation. So take the chance. Take the risk. Drink in deeply. Feast on the bread of life that you indeed also may be encouraged. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you that today you have encouraged us. We see what you do through your word and through your people. You do not let us remain in despair, but you lift us up. And as the churches struggled, you sent them Paul and you sent others and you sent Timothy and Titus and and so many others that we learn about and many that we don't learn about. Lord, you sent them to encourage to build up your churches with your word. And by your great spirit, you encouraged their hearts and you brought them near to yourself. And you do the same thing today. For Lord, this is an unbroken chain of the faithful through 2,000 years, Lord, that we know you by your great grace, that you encourage us by the power of your spirit and by the, the work of your people. And we praise you for that because to you, is due all glory and honor for these things we thank you and we praise you together today as we examine this and as we examine ourselves we thank you lord send the holy spirit to give us understanding in jesus name amen well i hope you've enjoyed this this time together we have uh an email address at gmail dot gmail.com you can contact us there i will answer your emails personally any kinds of questions or concerns that you have, or if you need some some help with something, we can even help you find a church in your area that you, you may be uh, able to join up with and to serve the Lord in. So God bless you and take care.